Hello, and welcome to Unbinding Prometheus, a podcast miniseries in which we will be examining the Greek legend of Prometheus and its various adaptations to understand it more deeply. In this episode, we will discuss Prometheus Unbound by Percy Bysshe Shelley and how the Romantics viewed Prometheus and what aspects of the character of Prometheus they thought were most important. Before we begin the story, it's important to note a few things. In Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound, all of the characters are referred to by their Roman names rather than the Greek names you might be more familiar with. Just know that everyone is pretty much a one-to-one -one match for the Greek counterpart you're likely more familiar with. Prometheus Unbound is also what's called a lyrical drama in four acts. A sort of play written in verse that is intended to be envisioned within the mind's eye rather than performed on a stage. And as a result, it has a lot of places within the text where characters known only as voices or spirits will seemingly enter and exit a, a scene for no narrative reason. And there are often rapid changes in setting as the scene or act changes. I have endeavored to lay the story out for you as concisely and concurrently as possible in this episode's story summary. Prometheus Unbound begins with Prometheus upon his mountain, where he has remained in torment now for some 3,000 years, as a new day dawns, and the eagle begins to gnaw at his liver anew. On this day he is observed by the Oceanids, who are a sort of sea nymph, Panthea and Ione, who are the sisters of Prometheus's wife, Asia. Prometheus curses Jupiter, king of the gods, for his torments, and claims that he would rather be enduring the torment he currently is than take the rule of Jupiter. Prometheus then struggles to recall the curse he laid upon Jupiter the day he was condemned to his eternal torment, and asks the forces of nature around him to remind him. Earth, who is a living embodiment of the land itself, calls up a phantasm of Jupiter to recite his curse to him, as she fears that to repeat it herself would call the wrath of Jupiter down upon her, so vitriolic and venomous was Prometheus's words, who claimed he was the one being who would never bow to Jupiter, and no amount of tyrannical power or fiery suffering would induce him to do so. And he that he wishes that Jupiter's power, of which he is so proud and is seemingly so absolute, will bring to him ills greater than the benefits he enjoys from being the supreme sovereign. And in the realms of gods and magic, wishes have power. Prometheus regrets this wish of malice on Jupiter and repents for it as Mercury, the fleet-footed messenger god, arrives with the Furies, malicious, cruel spirits of pain and strife from the underworld. Mercury expresses his sorrow at the fate of Prometheus, but he cannot help him or relieve him as Prometheus stood against Jupiter. Mercury begs Prometheus to reconcile with Jupiter and to tell him the secret that he hides, as Prometheus, forethought embodied, has seen the future and knows which of Jupiter's children will inevitably unseat him. And if Prometheus relents, he will be released. But if he does not, 
A new and more terrible torment has been devised that is not merely physical. Prometheus refuses and the Furies are set upon him, showing him visions of the torment, pain, and strife they inflict upon his children and that they will continue to inflict, especially telling the story of a man who preached hope and peace but had his message distorted and twisted for the benefit of conquerors and oppressors, causing Prometheus to weep at the fate of this man and of his children. But he refuses still to bow to Jupiter's will. And, in fact, these terrible visions strengthen his resolve, as the suffering they showed him was by the hand of Jupiter, and to fall in line now would only condemn them to this suffering eternally. As the Furies leave, the Earth conjured spirits of nature to comfort Prometheus, and Panthea also consoles Prometheus, before leaving to meet with Prometheus's wife and her sister, Asia. The two meet up, but Panthea is late because she has had strange dreams, and stranger still, she cannot seem to call one of them back to her mind. Asia attempts to divine the dream, and in doing so sees a terrible, misshapen thing beckoning her to follow, which Panthea soon feels as well. Taking it as an omen, the pair follow the shape to the mouth of a cave, which is the lair of a terrible king of beasts and ruler of dark things known as the Demogorgon. The two confront the Demogorgon and recount the relationship of Jupiter and Prometheus, telling a story different than the one we know. They say it was Prometheus that granted Jupiter his wisdom, with the promise that in exchange mankind would be free. Jupiter went back on his word, however, and enslaved mankind. And so in retaliation, Prometheus stole the flame and gave it to his children. And it is for this that Jupiter bound him to the mountain. In response, the Demogorgon shows them the spirits of time, the hours, of destiny, and of love. And the trio board a chariot and begin to ascend to heaven. Meanwhile, in the heavens, Jupiter is holding court, celebrating that he has become nearly omnipotent and has finally conquered the soul of mankind. And all that remains missing from his dominion is the conquest of Prometheus's spirit. It is then that the Demogorgon arrives, revealing himself to be the child of Jupiter and Thetis, and that he is the child of Prometheus' prophecy. The Demogorgon drags Jupiter, screaming to the depths of his shadowy domain, from whence Jupiter was never seen again, bringing the tyrant's reign to an end. Hercules frees Prometheus, and Prometheus is reunited with his wife Asia, and the pair, with Ione and Panthea in tow, make for a former temple of Prometheus, where they will live in peace as the world begins healing, and mankind lays all vestiges of worldly power and conflict down to live together in harmony, as was intended. And the voice of the Demogorgon rings out from his terrible smoky lair and is heard throughout all the world as he celebrates the victory of Prometheus's will over Jupiter with all other living things of the world. Before we can talk about what this story tells us about Prometheus, 
we need to understand that Percy Shelley was a romantic. And not in the way we think of the word romantic today. He wasn't a hopeless romantic. He wasn't constantly buying chocolates and flowers and doing grand romantic gestures for his wife Mary Shelley. Though I'm sure he did some of those things. He was a literary romantic, part of a group of literary scholars and poets that rejected the rationalism and cynicism that pervaded the ideas of the prior Enlightenment era and heralded the importance and beauty of individualism, genuine depth of feeling, nature, imagination, and what they called the sublime. And this colored all of his poems in prose. Shelley saw Prometheus as the ideal romantic hero, a figure who rejects established societal norms and rules and is in turn rejected by society for this. These characters are typically the protagonist and much of the work will tend to be focused on their mental state, their interior monologue. And they typically represent a, the force of nature within the narrative by their rejections of the societal norm standing against some form of industrialization. And we see this in Shelley's Prometheus. Shelley highlights several characteristics of Prometheus, the original tale, which focuses on his wisdom and his love of his children, does not. Particularly, his defiance, standing as the sole roadblock between Jupiter and complete omnipotence. His mercy, refusing to wish suffering upon another, even Jupiter that has condemned him to his eternal torment. And his connection to Earth or Gaia with his entrapment causing sickness in nature itself that is healed upon his release. These traits are brought to the fore in order to better suit Prometheus to the Romantic's ideals, transforming him into a nearly Christ-like figure. Which is interesting when considering the heavy implication that the man whose story the Furies torment Prometheus with is that of Jesus. The defiance of Prometheus is emphasized to recontextualize the story from being that of a parent suffering for a child to that of a martyr standing against a despot, and the relationship with nature serves to make Shelley's Prometheus uniquely romantic. In characterizing Prometheus this way, we see that the romantic saw in Prometheus a justified and wise rebel standing against encroaching tyranny. And within this conception of Prometheus saw something of themselves. This stands in sharp contrast with the characterization of Prometheus within Prometheus Bound, in which he is characterized as a criminal, being justly punished, and in this contrast we see the single biggest difference in percep perception between the Greek audience and Percy Shelley in the Romantics. The original Greek audience viewed Prometheus as a deeply cautionary tale of what happened to those who defied the gods. And the Romantics viewed Prometheus as an aspirational figure, a lone idealist standing against insurmountable odds. I have been Morgan Ahart of Unbinding Prometheus, and thank you for joining me.